0: Hey, everybody, this is Patrick Bromley of F This Movie, and this is my commentary track for Invaders from Mars, the 1986 Toby Hooper remake from Canon Films. And right now, we should be looking at the Canon Films logo. This is, of course, the middle of Toby Hooper's uh, Canon Films trilogy which also produced Life Force, and Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2. This and Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2 actually were released in the same year and were essentially in production at the exact same time he was actually editing this movie uh, while beginning production for Texas Chainsaw 2. I love these opening credits. (laughs) I wish that this movie was in 3D, and I don't even like 3D, but every time I watch these opening credits, I feel like this film, sort of lends itself to uh, to 3D. Uh, so this is obviously based, uh, it, it's a remake of a 1953 movie, I want to say, by William Cameron Menzies. A classic, I would say, of the science fiction genre. A movie I saw as a kid, I remember watching it in the afternoon with my brother, and, and being legitimately freaked out by it. And I don't think... This movie is especially scary um, although a little bit of digging around the internet suggests that there are things in it that have scarred some kids. Uh, that phenomenon known as kinder trauma there are a few moments in this movie that i I guess I will concede can lead to kinder trauma. <clears throat> i've done a number of commentary tracks for Toby Hooper movies this uh, Daniel Pearl's credit coming up right now, of course, the great director of photography of the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, reuniting with Toby Hooper for this movie. His photography in this movie is terrific. David Womack there, credited as first assistant director, he worked a lot on... Oh, boy, this is coming too fast. John Dykstra does the visual effects. John Dykstra, you know, of Star Wars and Spider-Man fame. Stan Winston. uh, This movie has a pretty high pedigree. Um... Christopher Young's score here is, is pretty great too. Here's his credit. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, only about half of his score survived because he was instructed by Toby Hooper to do something atonal and dissonant. Um, so here we have Dan O'Bannon and Don Jacobi's credit. And the reason I brought up David Womack, he was sort of a canon company man and reportedly did some work on the screenplay for this movie despite not being a writer. There's Toby Hooper's credit. Love you, Toby. So just during those credits, <laughs> I started on about uh, eight different ideas. So I apologize. I finished the David Womack one. Uh, we'll come back to all the other stuff. The The Christopher Young score, of course. Christopher Young, perhaps most famous for Hellraiser. Um, I love the way this camera circles around here as they come down right away. Uh, the movie telling us that Things are going to be eh, kind of fucked up, you know, (laughs) not allowing us to get our bearings um, literally, you know, turned upside down. Um, Gosh, uh, I'm saying too many things. So uh, Christopher Young was, was directed to do, look at that low angle, man. So he was directed to do an atonal dissonant score like Toby Hooper's Four Texas Chainsaw Massacre. He was excited to do it. That's what he turned in. About half of his score was that. It was rejected by producers and by uh, Menahem Golan and Yoram Globus, who run the Canon Group. They did keep his orchestral stuff. And he has some really pretty orchestral stuff. I really like the the Christopher Young score that survived, though I will admit I would like to have heard... um, his original stuff. If you look around young Hunter Carson's room here, uh, it is full of 1980s pop culture, toys, and stuff like that. And that's one of the things I think that the movie does a good job with in terms of updating this 1953 film for 1986. Um, it does make it current. This magazine that he's reading, of course, is a science fiction magazine that supposedly. Has an article about the original invaders from Mars. I want to say. Yeah. Um, I think the movie feels very old fashioned. But at the same time, contemporary enough for 1986. And there's a lot I'm going to have to say about this movie. Obviously... I struggle sometimes to do these commentaries alone. I hope I get better at it each time I do it. I don't know that I do, but I love talking about Toby Hooper enough and I want to celebrate his work enough that um, I figured I would give this movie a try. And and the reason I chose this movie is primarily for running time. Okay, right next to his bed, M&M's. See it? This will be important as the film goes on. See how they're the only thing that's still illuminated? The M&M's and the pennies? The pennies, those are Chekhov's pennies. Those play an important role in the actual plot of the movie later. But the M&M's, I have a different theory. Anyway, so it's at this point that that the film sort of segues into basically a dream. I mean, spoilers for the rest of Invaders from Mars, but this is one of those movies where the whole thing is kind of a dream. And normally, that bugs the shit out of me in this case, I will allow it. And not just because I'm making excuses for Toby Hooper, but because of the way he approaches the film. I think the whole thing is structured to feel like a child's nightmare. And I don't mean that in the, Hey, I'm making excuses for the lack of logic, the way I often will do with like Lucio Fulci's films or a lot of Italian horror where it's like, Oh, it's dream logic. It's dream logic. Um, I think it's specifically the nightmare of a child here. I'm going to have a lot to say about Hunter Carson's acting too, because my goodness, the way he ran away from that window was something. Um, all right. Where do I start? So <clears throat> this is not one of Toby Hooper's most loved films. I don't think, although it has begun its you know critical reassessment in recent years. The way that almost any movie does after it's been around for a long time. Um, In this case, again, I feel like it is justified. It is warranted. Because I think what seemed like a bad movie in 1986. And this movie carried the reputation for being bad for many, many years. And I think to a lot of people, it still is bad. And I will concede that the second half of this movie could really use tightening. Um, This movie's greatest downfall is its editing. And some of that I attribute to the fact that, you know, Toby Hooper was being pulled in two different directions. He had just come off of Life Force. He made Life Force one year before this. Life Force was a huge undertaking, massive $25 million movie. Uh, Just finishes that, rushes into production on Invaders from Mars. Isn't even done with Invaders from Mars, and he's already shooting Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3. So he had had three movies in two years, which is bananas. And again, he was given this deal by Canon, which was, we'll let you make three movies. Um, they could be whatever you want. He essentially had creative freedom. <clears throat> now there are different accounts because I have heard that one of the conditions was that one of the movies be a sequel to Texas Chainsaw. I've also heard that that became a condition after life force underperformed that it was like, Hey, this movie didn't do great. Make us a sequel to Texas Chainsaw uh, Hunter Carson here grabbing, of course, a Dr. Pepper, the drink of choice of the late, great Toby Hooper. Now we can see Timothy Bottoms of The Last Picture Show has already been overtaken by aliens. And that's, again, what makes this movie scary is that it is so much about uh, the fears of a child. I can't trust my parents. They're not who I thought they were. I can't trust, you know, a lot of adults, actually. Um, It's about being afraid of your parents. It's about being afraid of your teachers. It's about not knowing who you can trust. And those are all, you know, things that come from the original film, although the original film I think had more, because of its the context of its time, it had a, a subtext of uh, communism. You know, essentially it came out during the 1950s and we have communism and McCarthyism and all of this sort of, inv- uh, not Invaders from Mars, Invasion of the Body Snatchers crossover um, in terms of Everyone becoming the same, everyone becoming this other thing, right? Something not human. For years, I was hard on Hunter Carson's performance, Um, and I do think it's still rough. I don't think he's polished in the way that a lot of child actors are now. In some ways, that's good. Here's the discovery of the neck wound. Kind of gnarly. In some ways, it's good. I don't want some cutesy affected Disney Channel kid in this role. Uh, But there are times where uh, perhaps a more experienced actor might have sold some of this material a little bit better. But there are things I really like about his casting, including the fact that he's the son of Karen Black, who co-stars in the movie and will show up in just a little bit. And then I recently saw, for the first time, Paris, Texas. And I know uh, that makes me sort of a a heathen, and I apologize, that I only recently saw it, but I did finally see it. And he's amazing in that movie. So I think some of it is inexperienced. He had done another movie, but, you know, essentially one other movie. Um and I will chalk some of it up honestly to Toby Hooper's choices the tone he sets for this movie because I think Karen Black who was also I love he pours the mens into the coffee uh nominated for and man his reaction shot is great too David Gardner's um she was either nominated for or won an Oscar for Nashville I can't remember but Again, the movie has a high pedigree. You have Academy Award winner Louise Fletcher. You have Timothy Bottoms from The Last Picture Show. You have Karen Black from Nashville and Trilogy of Terror and a lot of famous movies. Uh, You have Lorraine Newman from Saturday Night Live, a comedic actor giving essentially a a straight performance. So one of the things that I hope to make a case for in this movie well there's a couple things that i want to make a case for but one is that this is a movie that is very much ahead of its time and i think in 2018 plays much better than it did in 1986 when it was first released and i think part of that reason speaks to toby hooper as a filmmaker and one of the reasons that i adore him as much as i do a lot of the horror filmmakers of his generation. So George Romero, Wes Craven, John Carpenter, David Cronenberg were all working years ahead of their time. Now, some of them had a great deal of success in their time. Great split diopter shot here. A little bit of Brian De Palma. I mean, not really, but allow me to dream. So a lot of them had commercial success. Toby Hooper had commercial success, right? He had made... Texas Chainsaw, that was a hit, even though nobody got paid. He made, most famously, Poltergeist, which more or less led to um, his deal with Canon. So now we have a scene in a classroom learning about science, dissecting frogs. This ties into the M&Ms. We're going to add up all these pieces at a certain point. Um, they were all working ahead of their time, and the reason that I think Invaders from Mars, which, I again, I will concede, is imperfect. The reason that I think it's ahead of its time is because I think it's doing something really weird and really tricky and really unique. And a lot of it, I think, is on purpose. I think a little bit of it is on accident because, again, Toby Hooper was incredibly rushed during this time. He has admitted to uh, substance abuse issues during this period you know which at one point in my life i referred to i love this little girl one two three four five um here's the first appearance of karen black who plays the nurse in this movie the sort of surrogate mother to david gardner who is of course her real life son with author screenwriter sometimes actor lm kit carson who of course was a a friend of Toby Hooper's and would go on to collaborate with him on the screenplay for Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. So I love that it's kind of like a, a family affair with him. <clears throat> um, I, at one point in my life, called the Canon Trilogy the Cocaine Trilogy. I don't do that as much anymore because I do think it's a little bit dismissive and, uh, you know, I've made it one of my pet causes to sort of legitimize a lot of these movies that I think are great that so many people dismiss even a little bit of digging around the internet just finds a lot of people kind of shit talking you know toby uber everything after texas chainsaw is no good he didn't direct poltergeist blah 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 get some new material you fucks um (laughs) this movie is part playing it straight um it is you know this sort of science there's a rancor toy right there um part science fiction movie directed at kids right uh there's a lot of kind of joe dante in it also whether it's some of the self-referential stuff which we'll see later on there's not a ton of it but there's some of it um it's it's probably the most the the winkiest toby hooper movie um but it also is like is sort of comedic. And so, speaking of uh, referential BT dubs. Oh, we're not there. I apologize. I thought this was. Oh, no, I was right. Okay, so this is where Life Force is on TV. This is Toby Hooper's Life Force, another great movie and a contender for a future commentary. Perhaps one day I will comment my entire way through toby hooper's filmography but life force honestly was a little daunting tonight because it's longer honestly and there's two different cuts and i haven't read space vampires um it is interesting though that uh the voice that uh i don't know she's not doing it here she does the conehead's voice um the three canon movies that he did i'm sorry i'm My brain is going faster than my mouth. The three canon movies he did, you know, he did uh, an adaptation of a novel. He did a remake and he did a sequel and really nowhere else in his career. Does he do that? With the exception of uh, late in his career, he remakes the toolbox murders, which ended up going straight to DVD and is an awesome movie. If you haven't seen it, that's his other remake and no, no crocodile is not a remake. Um, so I kind of like that this canon series uh represents different kinds of movies for him. We get to see what a Toby Hooper adaptation, sequel and remake all look like. And in so many ways they don't look or feel like any other sequels or remakes or I I can't speak to the adaptation I guess, but uh here we have a cameo appearance By the star of the original Invaders from Mars, one Jimmy Hunt. He played the kid in the original Invaders from Mars. He's the cop on the right here. So there's a kind of a Joe Dante move. And then later in the film, he actually says, "Um, I haven't been up here since I was a kid. You know, it's again, it's a reference to the fact that he was the star of the original film. So the movie is part serious, sort of science fiction, right? Sort of, but it's also almost parody. It never fully tips its hand over into. Here's the, I think this is the, I haven't been up here since I was a kid line. Yep. There it is. Um, it never fully acknowledges the fact that it's parody, but it it never even fully acknowledges that it's comedy. But it's definitely comedic, and you'll see it especially later on. The, the The moment for me that always says, sort of defines what the tone of this movie is, is very late in the film when James Karen, as the general, is looking for a penny. <clears throat> and he says something like, good God, man, hasn't anybody got a penny? And one of his subordinates says, we don't carry loose change into combat, sir. And it's a great, funny exchange that, to me crystallizes sort of what the tone of this movie is. And I think in 1986 people, I'm not saying audiences weren't sophisticated enough to get it, but they just weren't used to seeing something like this. You know, movies were either what they were or they were the joke version of what they were, right? Because we had, you know, airplane and we had top secret and those kinds of movies. So we had spoof. Um, but this is a weird more kind of in between, Uh, you know, I mean, it's not like it's not far from heaven, but it's closer to far from heaven than it is airplane, right? Where it's, Hey, this looks like the thing, but it's actually using some of the dressing and some of the trappings to, um, to a different effect. And that's why I think it plays a little bit better now. Um, I think the movie has aged, very well, because of that, because I think maybe it's just a function of having seen more movies or having seen, you know, the work of filmmakers who grew up on movies like this that were doing weirder things tonally, that audiences are a little bit more accepting of the weird imbalance. What is this? Is this being played straight? Is this a parody? Is this comedy? Is this serious? Yeah, it's all that stuff, right? It's a lot of what I was saying. um, If you listen, not that you have to go listen, but uh, I did a commentary for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre part two. And one of the things that I talked about was how much I liked um, the weird mix of it's funny and horrifying and gross all in the same scene. Right. (laughs) And this movie kind of does that same thing, except You know, it's got all those rough edges sanded off because it's meant to be a kid's movie. Um, On the Scream Factory Blu-ray, there's a making of, and Toby Hooper must say six or seven times, I wanted to make a kid's movie. And I love that this is what a Toby Hooper kid's movie looks like because it's demented. Let's face it. And what else do you expect? Like, of course he's going to make a demented kid's movie. Um, Here we have, you know, living in fear of his own father. Um, It's never said that his father is abusive, but the way that he curls his fists right there, all of a sudden this scene takes on a very different meaning. Right? And it's, again, it goes back to the the nightmare of childhood. Of being afraid of your parents. <clears throat> I was never abused. I was fortunate in that way. But I know what it feels like to To feel that um, for different reasons, but it's, I also love to how artificial this looks. It's clearly a set. And again, Hooper as a filmmaker has always been very interested in that. Um, Everything really post Texas Chainsaw, which goes for, verisimilitude 100%, right? It's all about how gritty and real this can feel, and seems like it's really happening. By the way, I almost wish my mom would uh, get taken over by aliens, because if she would just make me an entire plate of bacon for breakfast, like, yeah, aliens can take you. I love bacon, although she kind of burns it, and I don't particularly like burnt bacon. I know there are some of you out there who like it that way. You're monsters. Um... Texas Chainsaw goes for realism above most other things. But ever since then, he seems way more interested in artifice. Uh, so if you look at Eaten Alive, I mean, it goes 180 degrees in the other direction, where everything is clearly a set. The wigs are bad. I mean, the lighting is stylized. Like, he's just wants it to look... Okay, I'll, I'll admit it doesn't look appetizing. But again, we get these great sort of low-angle POV shots. A lot of the movie is shot kind of from a a kid's perspective, the way a kid would see the world. Um, Nope, I lost it. (laughs) Damn it. Artifice, I was talking about. So, you know, a lot of his other movies are sort of about constructing a heightened reality. He's not interested in real reality. He's interested in sort of movie reality. And so I know that there are practical reasons why that backyard had to be built on a set, especially as we get later into the movie and we see the sort of sand traps and stuff. I love Timothy bottoms delivery. (laughs) I'm having a wonderful time. Um, yum, salted beef. Aliens eat weird shit, man. This is a funny movie. Again, Dan O'Bannon, you know, is a good writer and knows Don Jacoby. I don't mean to minimize Don Jacoby's work either, but I know Dan O'Bannon's work. Um he had previously written Life Force, and I don't believe was very happy with what Toby Hooper had done with it, if I'm remembering that correctly. Uh, but he also ended up taking over Return of the Living Dead for Toby Hooper. That was originally going to be a Toby Hooper movie shot in 3D. And then later, Dan O'Bannon wrote and directed it and did an awesome job with it. So I think everybody wins because then we got the, the canon trilogy from Toby Hooper. There are practical reasons why The Backyard has to be a set, but I don't think they go out of their way at all to make it seem real. And it's yet another example here. We have uh, David literally trapped in a cage as the world closes in around him. He doesn't recognize his parents anymore. He's trapped, right? And that is a thing that kids can kind of relate to. You don't have options when you're a kid. He's in like, what is he? 10, 11, he might be 12. He doesn't have options. He doesn't have somewhere else he can go live. He's not going to just move out. These are his parents. This is where he lives. And even though they've been replaced by something scary and evil, too bad. He still has to live there. And there's a real helplessness to that that I think the movie gets at. Um, And again, could I be assigning too much meaning to it? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. I like the movie and I love Toby Hooper enough that I'm willing to sit here and dissect these movies all day. And this is not meant to be a definitive commentary at all. I'm just a fan who likes to talk about this filmmaker and these films. Um, you may know a great deal more about it than me. Cool. Please hit me up. podcast at com. <clears throat> We're actually coming up on, uh, <laughs> you know, one of those field trips where you're teacher calls an audible and announces a field trip in the middle of the day. Uh, we're coming up on the one year anniversary of Toby Hooper's passing. He passed away August 26, 2017. And so we're coming up on one year. If you're listening to, you know, depending on when you're listening to this, if you're listening to this the week it comes out, it's just under a month away. If you're listening to this sometime in the future, hey, it happened a while ago. And um, <laughs> you you could be listening to this in the future. And this never happened so ignore what I'm about to say, but I am considering trying to put together some sort of memorial. I don't exactly know what that would be. Here we have one of these great moments with Academy Award winner, Louise Fletcher. All this stuff works, you know. Um, I, I, I will concede, like I said, that the later stuff is edited a little bit sluggishly that the movie doesn't move as much as it as well as it should later on but i do think all of the sort of what's going on okay so yeah that's great her with the frog in her mouth. Again, this woman has an Oscar. And Toby whoever signs her up is like, hey, stick the frog in your mouth, you're going to swallow it. But that is a, a true sort of kinder trauma moment, right? If you saw this movie devoid of context and you didn't understand the tone and you didn't even know that it was a remake or whatever, you just see this woman swallowing a frog, like, yeah, you're going to be scarred by that. Her run is awesome and very half-assed. But she is playing a parody of every Hunter Carson runs like I do for the record. That move with the arms, pure me. Um, She's playing like a parody of every sort of shitty, scary teacher you ever had. I mean, the hairstyle, the way that she's dressed, the fact that she always refers to him by his first and last name. Um, She is sort of this archetype of the strict teacher that you live in fear of, even before she's taken over by an alien. anyway as I said I'm considering planning some sort of memorial I don't know what it will entail I don't even know if I'm going to do it Um, I would like to because uh, I don't know I'm sure you know there's going to be posts on social media that day a few of the horror sites might do retrospectives and mention you know Texas Chainsaw Massacre I don't know I don't know how he will be remembered but I feel like if I can do anything to help him be remembered better to help him be celebrated and not forgotten not just become some footnote the director of a few classic films whose legacy is you know Texas Chainsaw and the Poltergeist Controversy Speaking of the Poltergeist controversy, I do not think this is the case, for the record. But I wrote a piece on this movie years ago at our site, fthismovie.com. And um, in the piece, I posited that this film was sort of a reaction to what had happened on Poltergeist. Um, For those of you who don't know, uh, welcome to the internet. Welcome to... uh, movie discussion for years toby hooper was sort of swarmed in this controversy that he had not really directed poltergeist that it was uh directed by steven spielberg sort of ghost directed he was a writer on it he was a producer on it it resembles a spielberg movie in a lot of ways and so people said well it's too good and too successful spielberg must have directed it and some of the cast lent credence to those rumors recently uh, John Leonetti who had worked on the film and has become a director he directed Annabelle and FS this movie favorite Wish Upon um, went onto the Shockwaves podcast and essentially said oh yeah Spielberg directed it but then on the post podcast Mick Garris said I was on set no he didn't <laughs> Toby Hooper directed that you know Spielberg was a strong presence he had a lot of input Toby Hooper directed the movie anyway You know, that controversy, I think, went a long way towards derailing Toby Hooper's career. Um, He never got a, a big studio job after that. And maybe it's because he went to canon and then couldn't be taken seriously because canon was not taken seriously. You know, they didn't make serious movies with serious actors. They made trash, basically. But they gave Toby Hooper a lot of freedom. They let him make a kid's movie that nobody else was going to let him make. They let him remake one of his favorite movies with Invaders from Mars. So maybe that, you know, went some way towards um, changing the course of his career. I don't know for sure. But he did not bear ill will, as far as I know, towards Steven Spielberg. And again, I am not an expert in this. Okay, I know about as much as anybody else who has read this and followed this. And I'm sure that there are people who know more than me, um, I believe in my heart that Toby Hooper directed Poltergeist and and will die, believing that. Probably sooner than later, but um, and he did collaborate with Spielberg. Again, he directed an episode of Amazing Stories. He directed the pilot, I want to say, or maybe it was just an episode of that tnt series i think it was tnt usa taken i think it was called i don't know they did they did collaborate a few more times so he did not bear spielberg any ill will as far as i know at the same time there are all these indicators in this movie that i like to read it as the anti-et that spielberg makes a movie about an alien in the suburbs and it is warm and it is cuddly and it is a masterpiece and it is sweet and it is uh filled with humanity and it's great. I'm not knocking E.T. E.T. Is a, is a much better movie than this one. But when it comes time for Toby Hooper to make his kids movie, he says, okay, I'm going to make a movie about a kid in the suburbs and aliens. Um, and it's going to be the anti-E.T. in so many ways. And so we've already seen a few minor indicators. I mentioned the frog scene earlier. Very similar scene in E.T. I mentioned the M&M's on the bedside table. Well, Famously, uh, M&M's declined to take part in ET, and so Reese's Pieces uh, became the candy that ET eats in the film, and of course were the you know biggest selling candy for a while. I think I don't know you know I don't I don't have I don't have the candy data in front of me, everyone, but I just know that Reese's Pieces were huge because of the product placement in ET. Here's another indicator. This zoom in, dolly out shot. (laughs) This for me was the first time I was like, oh, wait, is he riffing on Spielberg? Because Spielberg has that famous one in Jaws of Roy Scheider on the beach. And this one to me is Toby Hooper going like, oh, yeah, you like that? Watch this. It's just going to keep going. Now, of course, again, there is a reason for the scene to be shot this way, because it's all about Karen Black becoming uncomfortable, about closing the space between her and uh, the gardeners. So there is a thematic purpose for the shot that, that Toby Hooper and Daniel Pearl construct there. But the length of it to me was like, Oh, that's, you know, Hooper kind of riffing on, on what Spielberg did in Jaws. Um, so ET can't get M&Ms. They go with Reese's Pieces. So in invaders from Mars, we get a prominent shot of M&Ms. Um, the aliens and invaders from Mars are about as far away from the cuteness of E.T. as you can get. They are just these big, dumb bulbs. They're like testicles with feet that hop around and just eat. Um, they're not sophisticated. They are not interesting. They're not cute. You can't turn them into a toy. Um, and there's just all these things that I'm like, oh, this feels a little bit like... The anti ET. And I know, you know, Joe Dante had kind of already made the anti ET with Gremlins. But for me, Invaders from Mars is more of a one to one comparison and subverts a lot of the tropes of ET more directly. So this was something I, and I, I, I can't say that I was the first person to come up with this. I seriously doubt that I was, but it was something that I wrote years ago. And, and even in researching, um, a little bit about the movie and trying to prepare for this commentary, I know you may find it hard to believe that I did any research because it really does sound like I'm just talking on my ass, but I did try to read a little bit and I found a very prominent film site that is no longer, um, in operation. site doesn't exist anymore. But they did a piece on Invaders from Mars. And wouldn't you know, there's this section that posits that this is Toby Hooper's reaction to E.T. And I'm not accusing this person of having read my stuff and perhaps borrowing it liberally. But I do know that if you Google this movie, my piece does come up. So it's not as though the person couldn't have found it, I guess is all I'm saying. So here we get, uh, again, more artifice, right? A more obvious set. And another identifiable trope of Toby Hooper's, which is something that I think I talked about on the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 commentary, and probably something I talked about. I did a commentary a couple years ago for the Funhouse, and I think I talked about it there as well. And that is The Bad Place. One of the uh, horror archetypes as defined by Stephen King in his book, dance macabre. Um, he identifies a few different tropes or archetypes of the horror genre, the shapeshifter, the vampire, the ghost. And one of them is the bad place. And Toby Hooper is a guy who keeps going back to the bad place. Um, here, you know, realistically, the bad place is probably David Gardner's backyard because that's where the bad stuff happens. That's where his parents went and disappeared. That's, uh, where the army guys get sucked up later in the movie, you know? Um, but he's real interested in this sort of the thing behind the thing, I guess the sort of subterranean layer, <laughs> if you will. Uh, so in the fun house, it's it's when we get into sort of the bowels of the fun house, not when we're actually walking through the fun house, but when we're above it, when we're behind the scenes, when we are, uh, literally trapped in the gears, you know, at the end of the movie as Gunther, uh, screams to his death. Um, in Texas chainsaw, it's when we, when stretch falls through the ground into this underground series of tunnels, which is very similar to what we're seeing here. The alien ship that is underground. Um, Toolbox murders, you know. It's the the basement of the apartment mortuary. It's the mortuary. So there, are, it, it's something that he returns to again and again. <clears throat> Here we have the first appearance of the big uh, testicle legs, designed by Stan Winston Studios. Um, these are operated. There's a a person inside. Work in that suit, and then there's a little person on that person's back. And we also have the first appearance of, I don't know, Supreme Leader, we'll call him Snoke, uh, who of course looks a lot like Krang from the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles cartoon. I'm positive I'm not the first person to make that observation, but I wonder when Stan Winston saw the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles cartoon for the first time, what his reaction was. There's some more kinder drama, by the way. And I do like Hunter Carson's reactions. <clears throat> it's pretty obvious, though. Uh, this movie had a budget of about $12 million And I think did a pretty good job of stretching that $12 million budget. I mean, it's not quite life force epic. <laughs> that face, by the way, is the face that Hunter Carson wears for much of the movie. Um, But a lot of the the effects are on the screen. I mean, if you look at this set, if you look at some of the creature design, but it becomes pretty apparent that there were essentially only ever two operating alien designs because you basically will only ever see two in a shot. So those are the two, and then they just keep getting repurposed. Now, funny that I should mention that because... Stan Winston left this movie not angrily, but uh, was offered the job to do effects on James Cameron's aliens around this same time. so that offer comes through during production on Invaders from Mars. He actually leaves the set of invaders from Mars and leaves uh Tom Woodruff in charge and Tom Woodruff again is another makeup effects guy who you've seen his work plenty of times um if you want to know more about Tom Woodruff, he's actually prominently featured in a little book called Monster Squad, written by this very, very talented author by the name of Heather Wixson, available on Amazon.com. Everyone, please order it, buy it, read it, tweet to Heather Wixson at the horror chick how much you love it. Uh, so Tom Woodruff is left in charge. Stan Winston leaves, takes some of his crew to go do aliens, uh, which, oddly enough, also only had a couple functional alien costumes that they just kept repurposing. And so it seems in that movie like there's a bunch of aliens, but there's not. There's really only a handful. So Stan Winston kind of uses the same trick in that movie, and of course would win the Oscar for that movie. This movie, on the other hand, uh, was nominated for a Razzie for Worst Visual Effects, John Dykstra. I give no credence to the Razzies. I generally don't even like to talk about them because I feel like, if we don't talk about them, maybe they'll go away. But if you want to understand just how far their heads up are, are, are wait, wait, if you want to understand how far up their asses their heads are, um, just know that they nominated this movie for worst visual effects. Now, even people who didn't like this movie tend to talk about how the fact uh, they talk about that the that the effects are pretty good, right? Because you're talking about Stan Winston and John Dykstra doing the effects. I will acknowledge that there's a cheapness that, um, that the big monster suits look like big monster suits, that the design is a little silly, a little impractical again. I don't know how to convey the message that this, that didn't happen by accident. That wasn't like, whoops, Ooh, we fucked up and look what we accidentally did. Well, I guess we have to shoot it. That's the movie that they were making. That's what Toby Hooper was trying to do. Yes, they're supposed to look kind of fake. Yes, they're supposed to look kind of goofy. It's all part of the aesthetic of the movie, which is like kind of exaggerated, a little over the top, a little silly, very much geared towards kids. You don't want big scary, realistic-looking aliens in your science fiction horror movie that's made for kids. And if if my theory is at all correct and you're going for sort of the anti-ET, like, yeah, you want the dumbest thing possible. You want something goofy because you're kind of teasing the idea of what aliens might look like if they come down to visit a kid in the suburbs. So now we get uh we get to see the first appearance of the sand trap, which is a cool effect. These guys in the orange get pulled down underneath the sand when they go out to the bad place. I did think it was weird again. I went back and reread some reviews of the movie in preparation for this, and a few of the critics do talk about uh, the realism of of specifically, I think, the effects and the design and stuff. And I cannot agree with that. But again, they're, t- they're watching the movie in 1986 and I'm watching it now and maybe we're looking at it with different eyes. I don't know. I feel like realism was not anything that Toby Hooper was ever interested in. And that's a, a, a big part of why I love him so much. Um, it doesn't concern him and it doesn't you know it's not what I go for in movies most of my favorite movies are sort of fantastic exaggerated heightened whatever you want to call it Um, those are the kinds of movies that I respond to and those are the kinds of movies that Toby Hooper made so it stands to reason that he be my favorite here we go that's a cool effect and again that's a you know they really did that. <laughs> and that was a thing that worked, where the people would go under the sand and then uh, it would fill in. Worst special effects. Uh, Louise Fletcher also nominated for a Razzie, by the way. And I would contend that Louise Fletcher knows exactly what movie she's in. Perhaps better than anyone else in this movie. Um, I like watching... <laughs> I love that moment. I mean, she's bringing a busload of kids to be programmed by aliens, like not to die, but kind of to die, to essentially lose their soul, their sense of self. Um, I like seeing Karen Black and Hunter Carson act together on screen. I genuinely do. Uh, but I think Karen Black is a little out of control at times in this movie. and And that is another sort of hallmark of Toby Hooper movies that the acting is big. It is not about realism. It is not about subtlety. Uh go back and watch Texas Chainsaw 2. Go back and watch Texas Chainsaw 1 for fuck's sake. Like no performance in a Toby, Toby Hooper movie is it, oh, Jesus. No performance in a Toby Hooper movie is especially measured, right? Even great actors that you've seen do really good quiet, nuanced work. Brad Durif, uh you know, gets nominated for an Oscar for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, also starring Louise Fletcher. <clears throat> and then goes on to make Spontaneous Combustion, where oh, her run here is even worse than her run in the hallway. Oh, man. I love it. The least intense chase scene ever in a movie yeah probably that also uh, really looks like a stunt person wearing a Hunter Carson wig anyway um... oh so yeah Brad Dorf makes spontaneous combustion he's crazy out of control Uh, Karen Black, very good actor, but in this movie goes so big that at times I swear her eyes practically crossed. (laughs) And I'm not saying that as a criticism, but like she's she's going nuts, uh, you know, after a while. And then that's part of her arc in the movie. She's somebody who can't believe what she's seeing, doesn't understand what's going on and is so confused and like just really leans into that, I guess. But um, so for these bullshit Razzies to single out Louise Fletcher instead of Karen Black not that they should have singled out anyone again they just pick the most obvious things oh uh, this once high profile director made this movie that didn't you know that underperformed at the box office that looks and feels like a B movie uh, that came out from canon well let's put a target on that movie and let's pick uh, I don't know the two highest profile names attached to that movie John Dykstra and Louise Fletcher and let's accuse them of doing career worst work this is that kind of lazy bullshit that makes me hate the Razzies and why they should fuck off forever. Um, Because even if you wanted to put a target on Invaders from Mars, you're picking out the wrong names. Now, should they have picked out Hunter Carson? No, fuck them. Like, to go after a kid like that? Inexcusable. But their whole raison d'etre is inexcusable, so they should never stop fucking off, I guess is what I'm saying. Here we have another Joe Dante-esque in-joke. Um, As we once again get uh Jimmy, what's his name? Jimmy Hunt from the original Invaders from Mars looking around the school. And he's about to come across a pretty famous prop. I will point it out when we see it. Um... I don't know. Again, so I mentioned the potential memorial on August 26th. I'm thinking something in the way of like a live podcast, maybe get some guests together to celebrate Toby Hooper and his films. But uh, we'll see if any of you are actually listening to this the week that it comes out and would be interested in that. Please let us know in the comments Uh, if you're listening to this months or weeks after August 26th, 2018. uh, I don't know. I hope hope I'm not embarrassing myself. I hope I'm getting you to appreciate this movie a little bit more than perhaps you already do. It has a Scream Factory Blu-ray. You know, that's a sign. So here's where Karen Black really starts to lose it. Um, Yeah, movies are, you know, slightly more accepted when they get the Scream Factory Blu-ray. I've read some interesting stuff about this movie. Relationship, right? Because yes, to some extent, David Gardner has lost his mother and father. His mother was taken away from him by his dad. Um, he's sort of looking for a new surrogate parent, and he finds it in Karen Black. I have read <laughs> that it is clearly that he's clearly crushing on her. That theirs is. Not a romantic relationship, obviously, because she's not showing any romance towards him, but that he uh that she's like a surrogate girlfriend, not a surrogate mom um, and I want to remind those people that these actors are related by blood, that is her actual child. they do not want to have sex with each other, and I read somebody else say like, "Oh, they missed an opportunity by not casting somebody who isn't his mom." Because then there could have been some, like, I don't know, romantic tension. Do we really need the will they or won't they between David and the nurse? All right, here comes the prop. So back there, that is the original uh, Supreme Leader from the original Invaders from Mars. The thing that is Krang in this movie is on the shelf back there. And that is, I mean, that's a total Joe Dante move, right? That thing's probably in another Joe Dante movie, actually. all this I I like all this stuff I mean I okay (laughs) I will I will concede how many times have I said I will concede let's not turn it into a drinking game everyone don't be assholes um all I mean is that I'm not recording this commentary to Karen Black's face is out of control but I love this moment um Just when you think the movie has gone pretty crazy, Toby Hooper says, nope, going crazier. Totally forgot what I was in the middle of saying. Doesn't matter. Uh, Just, you know, about the will they or won't they relationship. I don't know. Maybe that was it. Or maybe I was talking about the possible memorial or maybe I was talking about uh, this commentary. Oh, I know what I was talking about. I was saying, I, I, this, my purpose is not to convince you that this movie is a masterpiece. Um, I don't even know that I would put it in my top five Toby Hoopers. Right. But, uh, I do really like it. I really enjoy it. I think it's really fun. And he didn't, no, he did make a lot of fun movies, but this one's fun in a, in a very different way, because this one is fun in a way that like you can watch with a kid, right? I think Texas Chainsaw Massacre Two is super fun, but it's like really fucked up and gory and and often unsettling. Fun, you know, Life Force is fun because it's like fucking crazy, but this is fun in a very different way. Um But I, you know, the 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 pacing of the movie, the plotting of the movie, why he has a painting of. uh of uh oh god i can't remember his name beretta robert blake on his wall i'll never understand anyway here's the first appearance of james uh, karen who is amazing in this movie and like louise fletcher very much knows what movie he's in another connection between dan o'bannon and toby hooper of course because he stars in return of the living dead and return of the living dead part two also now on blu-ray from screen factory when Screen Factory first started announcing a lot of their titles, I was like, well, you guys are just in my brain because right away they were announcing, like, Night of the Comet and The Funhouse* and Life Force and just all these movies that, especially a handful of years ago, I'm not saying that I was ever the only person who liked these movies, but in my universe, I was kind of alone in liking a lot of these movies. The Internet, Twitter, these things have opened me up to other people who also love these movies, and I think the Blu-rays have helped people discover the movies and love them. Um, So I'm not saying I love these movies before anyone else, but when they were putting them out, I was like, oh my gosh, you guys are in my brain. And I do think it's helped legitimize some of these movies. Anyway, James, uh, Karen, I I keep almost saying James Cameron for that. I apologize. Um, James Karen knows exactly what movie he's in and has this great straight faced tongue in cheek delivery. Um, if you weren't sure what the remake of invaders from Mars was going for tonally prior to James Karen's appearance, surely you do now because, uh, (laughs) <laughs> he pitches his performance ex- exactly the way that it should be for this movie. I mean, he completely clues you in to what this movie is trying to do in a great way. <clears throat> I mean, the, the plotting of the movie is a lot of like, let's go here. Oh, somebody showed up. Well, let's go here now. And I think that only gets a little bit worse um, <clears throat> as we move into the last act. As the, the action goes underground, we get a little bit more of that. So I'm not going to argue that this is a really tight movie. Um, or like I said, that it's one of Toby Hooper's best. But it's really fun. And if it's not in my top five, it's certainly in my top ten. I'm not prepared to say that there's a Toby Hooper movie that I dislike, although I will i I won't say I will concede, but I will acknowledge that there are a few that perhaps I need to watch a few more times before I uh, reach a full judgment on them. I don't love Crocodile. I don't think I love um, Night Terrors. And I don't quite love Jin, his final film, shot in the United Arab Emirates. But I think it's interesting, and I think what I'm wrapping my head around is uh, that it's, it's very different from anything else he's made. It, it loses the sort of heightened lunacy. The thing that I respond to in so many of his movies isn't quite present in Jin, and that's why I probably need to see it a few more times. I dream of course of doing something to honor this filmmaker. Uh, You know, I've talked about wishing I could write a book. The fact of the matter is I'm not smart enough, nor am I a talented enough writer to actually do that. And there are books that exist about him. Um, John Kenneth Muir wrote a decent book about him called eaten alive at a chainsaw massacre, several years ago. Um, I think actually have it right next to me and it only goes up to the apartment complex in 99. So it only goes through the nineties. So it's missing anything he did in the two thousands. So that includes masters of horror, mortuary, toolbox, murders, gin, um, some of his TV work in the 2000s it's a decent book it is Uh, I don't know that I'm qualified to do it I wish I could I genuinely do because I write about a lot of movies I talk about a lot of movies nothing there's nothing for me as rewarding or as fun to talk about as uh, my favorite director you know And I think that's partly because I I do feel like I have something to say. God, I love the look on the guy on the right. So good. Um, I do feel like I have something to say, but also because it is a little bit of a cause for me, you know, because as I've said many times, he was unfairly kicked around a lot and, and continues to be unfairly kicked around. And, as we come up on the one year anniversary of his passing, the way that his memory is celebrated will remind me that he is unfairly kicked around. I'm sure. So the next time I do one of these commentaries, maybe I'm going to have a huge bone to pick. Um, and since I'm not smart enough or talented enough to write a book, I end up doing these commentaries and I don't know. I'm sorry. (laughs) Maybe they're no fun to listen to. Um, I hope some of my enthusiasm comes through, though. I can't promise that I will do commentaries for all of his movies because Salem's Lot is three hours, and really, who wants to hear me talk for three hours alone about one movie? If I do this live podcast, it's going to be more than three hours, but I'm going to have guests and shit. My memory of this actor is always that it's Doug Savant. Oh, this is disturbing. (laughs) Again, speaking of kinder trauma, there's a, there's that moment earlier with Louise Fletcher. There's this, but the one that's coming up is so much worse. So much worse. I actually put this on. We recently had a June exploitation on the site and, um, maybe it was sci-fi day. I can't remember what day I watched this for, but I put this on one day because I was home with my kids and I wanted to have something on for gene exploitation. And, you know, in my heart, I was like, well, maybe my son will just get totally sucked into invaders from Mars. And we'll begin a lifelong love affair with the films of Toby Hooper. And I can at least pass one thing on to the next generation besides my poison genes and crippling anxiety. And um, it got to the moment that I'm going to talk about the kinder trauma one. And he literally stopped and went, ew. Like I think in that brief moment it fucked him up. Now he has not talked about it since, so hopefully I didn't do any permanent damage, but uh it's upsetting. Anyway, that actor, that other soldier, I always my in my memory it's Doug Savant from Melrose Place. Cause he kind of looks like him, but I think it's because Doug Savant plays a similar role in the Roland Emmerich remake of Godzilla. (laughs) He's like the army guy. And so I'm picturing him in that outfit in this kind of movie, and I conflate the two. But uh, the Roland Emmerich Godzilla is hot garbage. And this is underrated and delightful. This, of course, is the uh, first appearance of Bud Court who once again should hopefully indicate what kind of a movie this is, because Bud Court, you know, famously in Harold and Maude, but just is generally a a comedic presence and a specific kind of comedy, a kind of straight-faced absurdism. And that's, I think, a little bit of what Invaders from Mars is trafficking in. In no way is this making fun of 1950s science fiction. And I want to make that clear. You know, I've compared it to Joe Dante's work and Joe Dante never makes fun of that shit. Joe Dante loves those movies and yet he's able to have fun with it. And I think that's what this movie is doing. Joe Dante, of course, is another one of my favorite filmmakers. So it stands to reason that the Toby Hooper movie that most resembles a Joe Dante movie is one that I'm really going to like and I'm and, and willing to go to bat for. Things do kind of slow down here and I will try not to let my comments slow down, but I realize I've been talking so much and so fast because I have all this stuff that I want to say that I end up almost out of breath at times. So I apologize if this is uh weird or sucky to listen to. Uh, Budcord is a little underutilized in the movie. <clears throat> I think he probably could have been given more to do or been funnier and is not quite given the opportunity. But again, just... I like seeing him show up in this movie because I think it tells you what's going on. The The kind of paranoia... Maybe that's why the second half... It doesn't fall apart, but it does... It becomes a different movie in the second half. Um, what's good about that first half is that it's setting certain things up. I mean, that—that's—I know it's probably like a model or whatever, but it doesn't look cheap. You know, it looks good. Um, this movie was made for about half the budget of Life Force, which famously was incredibly expensive. It was about twenty-five million. <laughs> this one was about twelve. And still only made like between four and five, which is just bananas to me. Because I feel like even the worst piece of shit now makes four to five million dollars in a weekend. Uh, Texas Chainsaw then cost even less. Texas Chainsaw cost between four and five and ended up making like 10 to 12. So of the three Canon films, it was the only one that was... (laughs) that was the only one that was profitable marines have no qualms about killing martians there's how can you possibly misinterpret what this movie wants to be again i know that it doesn't have quite the pacing the sort of bouncy energy to work on exactly the level that moments like that do if the movie could have been more of that and trimmed some of the – gotten rid of a little bit of the airlessness that we're about to get into, I think it might even be better remembered or, or would have been celebrated better at the time. Although um, that uh, that John Kenneth Muir book that I referenced earlier, Eaten Alive at a Chainsaw Massacre, opens with some reviews from of uh, Invaders from Mars. And they're generally positive. And they're like from the New York Times and the New York Post um, – The L.A. Times, I mean, there were critics who got it, even in 86. I don't know. I mean, audiences obviously didn't, um, but I don't think this is a movie that was ever going to be a big commercial hit, honestly, because, A, it's it's not spitting in the face of a thing that was very popular in the eighties, but in a little bit, in a little bit of a way it is, you know, it's, it is kind of spoofing a certain kind of eighties movie, a, a certain kind of Amblin esque kid friendly genre movie, right? Um, it's weird. It's eccentric. It's totally, perhaps, confusing. So I know that it was never going to be a big hit. But it is the kind of movie that I think a lot of young people would have discovered on cable, you know, if it had played a lot on cable. Um, I think it's a movie that young people might have discovered. And, and, you know, young people are slightly less discerning. They watched stuff. And I say this as somebody who saw a lot of movies because it's what was on. Things have changed so much where everyone can curate exactly what they see. They have Netflix and Hulu and Amazon Prime and, you know, Spotify and Pandora and uh, everyone curates their own experience to the, to the letter. My kids don't find stuff, you know, uh, accidentally because it's what's on. I would never have seen Better Off Dead if, if Netflix existed. I mean, maybe I would have, I was a different kind of kid, but like, that's a movie that I just came across on cable and became a lifelong favorite. And it was because it was on. I have gone off on a tangent (laughs) and I apologize because now we have the army about to invade the underground system of tunnels. So the, the first half is much more about paranoia. It's much more about where did my parents go and who have they become? And that was, you know, one of the things that was so scary about the original film, even as a kid watching it. In the 80s, you know, it was a 30-something-year-old movie at that point, but it still retained a lot of its power because of that central idea. Your parents are not who they were yesterday. And that's a terrifying notion to a kid. And the first half of this movie deals with that a lot better. In the second half, it just becomes this kind of big epic, uh, much more of kind of a traditional 80s film. It stops being... uh, about the characters as much it stops being about david gardner's very specific personal plight and becomes this bigger army versus aliens kind of a story which is still a lot of fun and very much in the spirit of some 1950s science fiction but uh but i think that's part of why The general consensus seems to be that the second half of the film is not as strong as the first because I think it loses a lot of that central thread. And, like I said, it goes on a little bit long. Um, Perhaps because of the whole editing, you know, during production of Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. Maybe Toby Hooper just didn't have the uh, the time or the energy to devote to tightening this movie up as much as it could have been tightened up. I do love Rinaldi's uh, capture here. And Rinaldi, correct me if I'm... Yeah, Rinaldi is Doug Savant, right? Yeah. So I think Rinaldi is on the, the business end of the most disturbing shot in the movie, which is coming up. We're not there yet. A little reminiscent of Tremors. And I say reminiscent despite the fact that this came out first. <laughs> Tremors, by the way, another movie that uh, kind of does what this movie is doing. I think in some ways they are sort of spiritual cousins. in terms of capturing a certain fun retro spirit while also feing, feeling contemporary. Um, not quite spoofing the thing, but riffing on it in a self-aware way. Tremors, I actually would argue, is, is more straightforward than this movie is. But oddly enough, I mean, Toby Hooper was not really capable of doing anything straightforward post- mm, Poltergeist, maybe? Once again, we get two ball sacks only. I gotta stop calling them that. I'm sorry. I'm grossing myself out. It's just because I have weird-looking testicles. R.I.P. Budcourt. Um, but, like, the Funhouse is kind of straightforward, even though I think it's very clever and very subversive and, and not what you expect at any given moment. Um, in terms of the emotional visceral impact it's kind of straightforward right it's not postmodern which is I know sounds pretentious and is like a stupid thing to call a movie but I do think that this invaders from Mars remake could be correctly described as postmodern because I think it is deconstructionist at the same time that it is uh, playing fair This, you know, is right out of like Mars Attacks, which wouldn't come out for another 10 years. But we get all those scenes of humans trying to reason with aliens who are dumb, destructive things. And their response is always to just kill the human. And that's exactly this beat that we get uh, here in Invaders from Mars. Um, Mars Attacks, it's literally that one joke again and again and again. And J.B. and I have talked about uh, he's a bigger fan of that movie than I am because he likes that joke. He thinks that is a very funny single joke, which is totally within his rights. I just find it a little repetitive. I enjoy the movie because of the cast, and, and I think it's fun, but, like, it's one joke. <clears throat> Where I think the movie, in this case, differs from a Joe Dante movie is that the military is effective here. They succeed at what they're doing. They are able to protect Earth. I do love that, though. Uh, From the alien invasion, and it is actually the scientist who, you know, is ineffectual and is uh, done away with. Joe Dante probably would have reversed that. The military tends to be ineffective in Joe Dante movies. So, yeah, David Gardner kind of taken a big back seat in the back half of this movie. Um, so much of the focus is on the military and how are we going to stop the alien threat that the movie does lose a little bit of its focus. <clears throat> and then, you know, it comes back a little bit here because he deliberately makes a choice to go down to the aliens to find his parents. This would be the, I guess, the second to last wide release theatrical feature for Toby Hooper. Um, Spontaneous Combustion, which was his next movie after this, after Texas Chainsaw 2, I'm sorry. Um, Texas Chainsaw 2 comes out later this same year. And then three years and Spontaneous Combustion gets kind of a limited release. His final really wide release movie would be The Mangler. And then everything else goes straight to cable, straight to DVD. So I think that is another part of the mythology of, you know, the the once great directors fall from grace. No, no horror, no master of horrors career, you know, shit the bed as great as Toby Hooper's, you'll read in almost any article written by somebody who doesn't quite love horror. That's not fair. People can love horror and still think that his career totally shit to bed, but, uh, I just don't see it that way, you know, and especially years removed from this body of work. Who cares? Who cares if the movie played in theaters or went straight to DVD? Because it's, that's not, that doesn't speak to the quality of the movie and it doesn't matter because it lives on what in home media in repertory screenings on cable uh, on VOD, whatever. If I'm going to watch Toolbox Murders, it doesn't matter to me that it went straight to DVD. It's a kick-ass movie. So I'm not sitting there w- thinking like, well, yeah, but it didn't show in theaters, so it must not be good. Like, I don't know. The movie's the movie, you know? <clears throat> and uh, I think it's Adam Green talks a lot about how movies need like seven to ten years. Before we can really determine um, what their legacy is. You know, I like that he has heels, by the way. Like high heels, kind of. Um, that even a movie that may seem like the, the the big thing that year, 10 years from now, may not be talked about. And the movies that we're talking about in 10 years may not be anything that we thought we'd be talking about. <clears throat> And I noticed that phenomenon all the time, by the way. I I think that's a completely true statement that he's saying. I mean, I think it's possible to watch something and feel like you're seeing an all-timer, right? Like when It Follows came out, I was like, well, this is an all-timer. I have no idea in 10 years if we're going to be talking about It Follows. So here's the moment that I was talking about. This is the most scarring moment in the movie. Um, And the thing that made my son say, gross. Because, yes, We've seen this scene in plenty of movies. The needle get I love his reaction. The needle getting closer to the body, the dripping, all of it, right? Okay, gross, gross, gross. Think it's gonna stop. Doesn't fucking stop. Goes all the way down to that. Like, see how it's there's two parts to the needle? There's like the skinny part and the fat part. I would have been haunted by the skinny part going in, because it's gross. It penetrates the back of his neck and it's nasty but I could have handled it a lot better when the fat part also goes in. It really fucks me up. So we don't know what movies we're going to be talking about in 10 years. And this is very true because every year we do our top 10 lists and, uh, I've been doing a top 10 list every year since probably like 96, I think was when I started. And if I were to go back and look at my top 10s for every year for the last 22 years, not only would I be completely embarrassed at some of the movies that I included on the top 10, but I guarantee you there would be lots of movies that like I watch, I talk about, I think about so much more from any given year than I do seven of the movies on my top 10. You know what I mean? Um, So you just, you don't know, you need time. You need perspective. And ultimately, it's the movie that lives on. Not its, not its performance when it came out. Not its critical assessment when it came out. Not the way that it was distributed. Just the movie. So the fact that, you know, this came out from canon. Or was the middle part of a, a poorly received trilogy... Made by a filmmaker perceived to be on the downslide, um, none of that matters if if a kid tomorrow comes across the movie and watches it and falls in love with it, falls in love with the imagination of the production design, the weirdness of the tone. Um, the movie's the movie. <clears throat> Like when he says, can I talk to you to the, uh, crankhead, whatever you want to call it. I never got that really. I, never, I was way into like teenage mutant Ninja turtles as a concept. Cause I was right about the age that, um, they were targeting when the, when the cartoon first came out and I was already kind of aware of it cause I was reading those black and white comics and not understanding what they were making fun of. I just took it at face value. Um, but I never really got into the cartoon. I know I should have, but I know it's beloved by a lot of people. Why am I talking about that instead of invaders from Mars? Oh, cause I suck. (laughs) One, two, three, four, five. Oh, my kids, teachers actually do that in their classrooms, by the way. Do I think of invaders from Mars every time? Yes am I probably the only parent in the classroom thinking of invaders from Mars at that given moment? I can almost guarantee it. I continue to miss Toby Hooper every day. Um, I don't know that he would have made another movie, you know, he was in his seventies when he passed. Um, Hadn't made a movie in a couple of years. But was still actively developing projects. You know, he and Jared Rivett had worked together on a bunch of stuff. Uh, I used this scene when I was in grad school. I took a class called the uh, Portrayal of Teachers in Film. Why they were giving graduate level credit for that class, I could not tell you. Um, But I just was finding any class at the university that... uh, had film that I could turn into a film class that had film in the title. So it was essentially 25 teachers and me. And so they were all watching these movies as teachers. Um, and I was watching it as a film student. I was watching these movies as a film student. So we watched every obvious, you know, dead poet society and dangerous minds. And we watched some good stuff too. We watched teachers. Uh, we watched a dry white season. Like we watched some interesting stuff. Um, but we also, you know, Mr. Holland's opus and just real fucking garbage. But, um, so for my final project, we all had to do final projects and half the class, you know, they were doing their final projects basically on like different coach movies because well, coaches are teachers. So let's watch this scene from, you know, coach Carter or miracle or any number of fucking sports movies. Uh, A lot of coaches in, in the, in the class. Um, I did portrayal of teachers in genre films and I did this big cut. I, I, so I, I did this presentation where I talked about <clears throat> first, I had to teach them what genre films were um, explain what I meant by that. And then just showed some different examples of teachers in genre films and then cut together on very crude equipment because this was maybe just a couple of years before like editing software was, commonplace and all the files were digitized and stuff like that. So I couldn't just go in and pull stuff off of YouTube. I was like ripping scenes off of DVDs and teaching myself final cut pro. So I cut this thing together, but I did this like so hard to say goodbye to yesterday montage of a bunch of teacher deaths in movies. And I remember including the Louise Fletcher's demise in invaders from Mars, which I had to rip from my elite laser disc because I didn't yet own the movie on DVD? I don't think. Um, eventually I bought it as part of a an, an MGM double feature disc, I think with Strange Invaders. And this was before, you know, and then Scream Factory put it out, obviously. But I remember a Saturday night in the 90s, driving to Tower Records and buying Invaders from Mars, on Elite LaserDisc, and probably spending $40 on it. But being very satisfied with the purchase because I liked the movie and uh, it was a chance to sort of rediscover it. And at the time, you know, I would not have called Toby Hooper, my favorite director. This is something that has sort of, I think even developed in the years that I've been doing the site. I, you know, when I started the site, I don't, I would not have identified Toby Hooper as my favorite director I talked about him a lot and how much I loved him and how much I loved his work um and the more I did that the more I realized oh wait he's the guy I want to be talking about the most he's the the guy whose movies I want to watch the most he's the guy whose work makes me happiest in a lot of ways you know um and so I finally had to admit myself admit to myself like oh yeah no he's my he's my guy he's my favorite director <laughs> and there's something Weirdly liberating about that. I I did an article a couple weeks, months ago about having too many favorite movies and eventually what does that mean? You know, does it diminish the idea of the word favorite if everything is your favorite? And of course, Mike made fun of me because he did his Richard Christie impression. It's my favorite. Um, But there is something oddly liberating about being able to choose a favorite. Do you have a favorite movie? Uh, Back to the Future. Do you have a favorite director? Yeah, Toby Hooper. Like it's nice... Having an answer for that, even though you don't need an answer for that, because there are a ton of directors that I love. So we have this great big climax. It's schlocky, right? This is supposed to look and feel kind of like a cheap B-movie, because that's exactly what Toby Hooper was trying to make. Let's not pretend he was trying to make uh, A-list science fiction. He wasn't trying to do it with Life Force either. You know, I I think in Life Force, he does it. I I would argue he kind of does it here because, again, he's working with such talented people. Is that Dale Dye? It might be Dale Dye. Um, He's working with such talented people that it does have not A-list production values. I mean, it does. It does. It's just that the designs are are B-list on purpose. Stan Winston deliberately designed something schlocky. Everything deliberately looks kind of fakey and kind of rubbery Um, life force, you know, is very much B material, but done on an A list budget done with tremendous scope, great effects, a great score, you know, but it's, it's schlock by design. And I think that's a little bit of a disconnect that again, I, I, in the eighties, I don't know that audiences fully, I think we've come a long way. <laughs> I, I, I'm thinking my way through this as I'm talking about it. And we're running out of time here, but I think we've come a long way in, in learning to appreciate not trash, but um, lower art. And I, and I don't say that as a pejorative because to me, it's all art to me. All, you know, it's low art is still high art. Um, I know that a lot of people don't like Quentin Tarantino. Right. And I get it. And you don't even have to like his movies, but I do think that him being such a part of the conversation and the influence of his work, I think Karen Black's reaction, the influence of his work, um, I think led to a greater understanding of a certain kind of movie, a greater acceptance of what movies can be. And so I think in 2018, I think an audience has a better time accepting a movie like this and, and has an easier time understanding exactly what Toby Hooper's trying to do or what life force is trying to do than they did in 1986 when it just was less commonplace. And that's why I say, you know, he was a little bit ahead of his time. Um, Carpenter was ahead of his time in terms of a lot of his themes. Cronenberg was light years ahead of his time uh, when you watch something like Videodrome and it's as relevant, if not more relevant in 2018 than it was in 1982. Uh, Toby Hooper isn't ahead of his time necessarily in terms of his themes, but more so in the way that he sort of just picks and chooses what he wants, when he wants. So yeah, it's going to be part straightforward science fiction movie. And it's going to be part kids movie. And it's going to be part comedy and it's going to be part satire. Uh, oh, here we have the great penny exchange. Yeah, I love it. Um, and, you know, he's got the penny with him, right? Chekhov's penny, like I said, next to the M&Ms. <clears throat> In terms of the sort of tonal shifts um and the the overall approach to taking crazy material and then presenting it a certain way, I think I think it plays better now than it did in the eighties. It's not really the ideas that he's working with. Because as much as I love Toby Hooper, I don't think his movies are idea movies. He's not Cronenberg. He's not Carpenter. Um, His movies are about visceral experiences. There's certainly a playfulness to a lot of his stuff. But he wants to sort of take you on an emotional ride. Not really rock you psychologically. Which isn't to say that none of his movies have ideas. I mean this movie certainly does in terms of what it's saying about um like i said even what it's saying about uh, the etification of american genre movies in the 1980s or what it's saying about the way that kids feel about their parents which is very much borrowed from the 1953 movie too <laughs> so here's where we get to the moment where it's all a dream. Here we have Hunter Carson once again running like me. And PS, he's all over the special features of this Blu-ray and just could not seem like a nicer, better adjusted guy. So I'm 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 a hundred percent on team Hunter Carson. Lest that be unclear. Um but I he just runs funny as a kid, you know. And we can smell our own, it's fine it's the waving of the arms. I think I still run like that. So we get to the, it's all a dream cheat. Um, but is it a cheat? I don't know. I mean, yes, in a way I I think it doesn't help the movie. I think an audience who is already maybe not on board for some of the weird shit that Toby Hooper's doing in this movie or some of the, you know, quote unquote cheapness of the film is only going to be even more pissed off when they feel like they've been, uh, Love that shot. Love it. There's something on IMDb trivia that says Lorraine Newman's hair caught on fire when that thing blew in the back of her neck. P.S. If Doug was here, he would be doing a great Don Pardo every time he said Lorraine Newman. I am no Doug. So this too feels like a nightmare, right? Something bad is happening. Your parents are calling to you. You're stuck. You're trapped. You can't get to them. Um and so this movie does the thing where it's a nightmare, oh no, the whole thing was a bad dream and okay, now it's starting again. And so when it starts again, is it now it's starting for real? Is it another dream was the nightmare a foretelling of things to come? But I think it does give the movie context. I don't think it's just a cheap out. Um <laughs> I love uh what about me? Oh, you're fine, mom. Like <laughs> not even worried. Uh dad could be an evil alien, but no, mom, you're cool. Um because the whole movie is structured and pitched as a a nightmare, a kid's nightmare. I think it does give it context. I don't think it's just about a twist ending for the sake of a twist ending. I think it does create, um, a space in which this movie can be exactly what it's supposed to be. You know, does it need to, the part where it's a little bit of a cheat is the whole it's happening again. And I think that just speaks to the kind of movie that Toby was trying to make and the sort of paranoid 1950s science fiction, because for it to just end, Oh, there's her conehead voice. Um, <clears throat> for it to just end as a happy ending might feel wrong given what's come before, right? Because it is supposed to be this kind of paranoid thing. I keep using the same words and I apologize, but, um, uh, it might be kind of a limp ending for it to just end on like, okay, well, that was scary, but we're cool now. Good night. Click credits. Um, And yet I do feel like the, oh no, it's happening again, is kind of just a gimmicky twist. But I'm okay with the rest of the movie being a nightmare. Because I think it functions well that way. And I think it plays fair in terms of what kids are actually afraid of. I don't know. This, a lot of this makes sense in my head, and, and some of you may hate what I'm saying. And me for saying it. And I don't blame you. Listen. I hate me too. I actually really like his, his expression there. <clears throat> it's the wide-eyed one I don't love as much. This one, kind of. And it doesn't help that the movie kind of freeze-frames with that and ends on that. Um, I also don't think we need to see the ship coming down. I would be okay with just his face and the lights. Um, and I, the implication that, uh, that it's happening again, but, and even that doesn't make sense. That's almost like that full thing <laughs> It's almost like the ending of, uh, City of the Living Dead, where the kid is running towards the camera and we hear people screaming. It's like, huh? Why? Because what would he be seeing in his parents' room? Are they not there? And that's why he's screaming? Because they couldn't have been taken over already. Anyway, <laughs> I guess it's a nitpick because at this point the movie's over and you're either kind of on board with it or you're not. And I am. Hey, it was Dale Die. Look at me. Uh, he, of course, went on to become the like technical advisor for every army military war movie ever uh marines i guess i should say not army um so i'm glad that he got his start here (laughs) and he may have very well been doing stuff prior to invaders from mars i just want to pretend that like the guy who probably consulted on saving private ryan got his start on uh invaders from mars anyway thank you guys again for uh, those of you who have listened and who have made it to the end I, i genuinely appreciate you Uh, humoring me as I talk about these movies and, and just try to celebrate a filmmaker that I love. Um, And hopefully, you know, get some people to revisit some of his work, whether it's to watch it with my dumb commentary or because something I say, sparks a curiosity in them to check out a movie for the first time or to revisit a movie that they perhaps dismissed because something I said makes them want to give it a second chance and you don't even have to love it. But even a willingness to revisit one of his films that you may have dismissed means a lot to me and I think means a lot to his memory. Um, Anyway, I'm still trying to figure out what we're going to what I'm going to do for his for the one year anniversary of his passing. It's going to be a sucky day. For me, for a lot of people I know, um, so I thought maybe by talking about him, by celebrating his legacy with with some of you guys listening, or with some special guests talking about, you know, his movies and why I love his movies and why other people love his movies, I thought maybe that would help us uh, get through what I think is going to be kind of a a tough day. But we'll see. I haven't decided yet. Um, but I, I like I said, I appreciate you guys. Putting up with me and humoring me. Um, I hope I said one or two things that maybe convinced you that this movie is kind of cool because, man, it is. I mean, look at the names Tom Woodruff, uh, Kevin Yeager. Anyway, um, Toby, you are missed. Uh, thanks for all your movies. Thanks for this movie. It's it's your most playful movie. Um, I think it's really, really fun. And uh, you were something special. And thank you guys all very much for listening. Take care.